build your cultural competence. Listen to interesting stories. Learn about the cultural fails and how to avoid them. Get the global perspective here at Culture Matters on International Business. Your host, Chris Smith, has a plan. A plan for people who are looking for a solution. He makes you understand cultural diversity better by interviewing real people with real experiences. Every episode, he interviews a prominent guest who will tell you his or her story and share international experiences, making you more cultural competent. And now, here's your host, Chris Smith. Hi, hello, welcome to Culture Matters. We have a guest today, and his name is Patrick Smith, and we're on episode number 81081. Patrick Smith is an airline pilot and the host of AskThePilot.com. His book is called Cockpit Confidential, Everything You Need to Know About Air Travel, and he lives in Somerville, Massachusetts. Let's get right to the interview, because if there's something international, it must be talking to an airline pilot. It's time for this week's guest at Culture Matters. Good morning, Patrick. How are you? I'm fine. Thanks for having me. Okay, more than welcome. Happy that you're here. And just before hitting record, um, I was we were just having a bit of chat, chit-chat before the actual recording of this podcast. And, and I was telling you that I, all of a sudden I realized that I've never really had somebody from aviation on this uh, on this culture matters podcast and it just makes perfect sense to have somebody like you with your profession um, here on the show as well so but you know let's first talk about you tell us a little bit about yourself where you come from where are you now and what would you consider being your cultural frame of reference <laughs> that's a lot of questions wow. so you get a lot of 10 minutes for there. this i know i know it's, it's the introduction question why don't we take those one at a time? Which one would you like to, okay, to hear tell us, first? Tell us a little bit about yourself. <laughs> this is like a job interview. Not at all. <laughs> Unless you're soliciting, of course. Okay, let's see. Um, I live in Boston in the U.S. I'm uh, an airline pilot. I've been an airline pilot for about uh, 25 years uh, I grew up uh, in in Massachusetts in the U.S. I was, um, I guess, what you would call an airline geek mm-hmm. my my entire life. I've I've been around uh, air travel, airplanes, the airline industry for uh, as long as I can remember. Uh-huh. I became infatuated with it for reasons that I don't understand and can't remember at a very young age, and and followed through with that to the point where I became a pilot and and have stayed in the industry my whole life and. Starting about uh, 12 or so years ago, I began writing about air travel. I had uh, an online uh, column that was called Ask the Pilot that ran in an online magazine for about a decade. And then that became uh, my uh, independent website that that I run and curate today. That's called Mm askthepilot.com. And uh, there's a book that grew out of that uh, (laughs) called Cockpit Confidential. And so it's it's my my day job uh, and my part time job, you could say, both uh, l- living uh, the, the industry uh, as as my full time job and also as a hobby. Okay, sounds sounds very good, um, and uh, I'm very curious. We're going to talk about your book as well, uh, called Cockpit Confidential. So that was question one. Uh, where you come from? <laughs> that was Boston, right? Were you born and raised in Boston? I was. Um, Boston area, and if, if people are unfamiliar, Boston is uh, 
about a half hour flying time north of, of New York City on the Atlantic coast. It's funny how you start uh, expressing distance in flying time rather than driving time. That depends a little bit on your, on your <laughs> professional deformation, possibly, maybe. My, my mindset. Okay, you told us already where you are right now. You just told me before recording that yesterday, um, and we're recording this May 17, 2017, that's before for these people that are who are listening in the future. Yesterday, May 16, you were in Amsterdam, which is the capital of the Netherlands, the city where I was actually born. So you just came back, possibly jet-lagged, or maybe you didn't stay there long enough. Um, so you're in Boston, came coming from Amsterdam yesterday. And now the last part of this question is, what is your cultural frame of reference? I'm not sure what that means exactly, Chris. Uh, have you lived, in other, have you lived in other countries? Have you worked with other con uh, cultures? Um, these, what is your exposure to other cultures? I have not lived in another country. I've traveled to uh, probably close to 90 or 100 countries, and a lot of that is uh, because of my job, uh, places I've flown to as a pilot, as a crew member, but a lot of it also is traveling that I've done just in my spare time. Mm -hmm. Okay, nice, um, yeah. Now, there, there's, a, I guess, a, a backstory we could say to that. Um, when I was a little kid and, and I became enthralled with air travel and the airline business, the, the way that happened is I would collect airline stuff, um, timetables, postcards, anything with a logo on it. And, and one of my favorite things to do was to read the route maps in the backs of the airline magazines. Yeah. And, you know, flying to me then and now wasn't strictly the airplane. It was where the airplane was going. Mm -hmm. And studying those maps, uh, it, it wasn't about just aviation per se. It was geography. It was culture. It was where all these planes were going, the countries they were connecting, the cities they were connecting. And through my love for aviation, I became very interested in uh, just geography mm -hmm. and, and culture and travel. And, and to me, those things are inexorably linked. And for me, flying is more than just a means to an end. It's, it's the journey in whole. It's not just how you're getting there, but where are you going? Yeah. which is one of the reasons I enjoy when I go to work doing uh, international flights, uh, flying long haul. I mean, what really could be more, uh, I guess, pan-cultural than, than airline flying? I mean, all of these cities and countries all interconnected in a way that now nowadays, you know, really is, is just unprecedented. You know, the fact that you can hop on a plane in, in New York or London or Amsterdam and, and fly literally halfway around the world in a matter of hours, mm -hmm. uh, you know, something that would have been completely unthinkable, you know, just even, even just decades ago, let true. alone hundreds of years ago. True, true, and true. here we are. Yeah, I, I can remember. I mean, this is the, the, the story that you just told us about your up, up growing, et cetera, sounds exactly like my own. I mean, I would huh. go to, I would go to Schiphol airport. Uh, and that time, I mean, this is, uh, this is 30, 40 years ago or something. Um, I would have found a um, an entrance into the then uh, uh, traffic air traffic controller tower, and I would w find my way up. I couldn't enter, of course, the area where ATC was, but um, uh, I would I would be right underneath, and I would just be able to watch all over the airfield, etc., and and collecting these timetables and looking at the at the aircraft, you know, and what their different um, 
shapes and form and how far they could fly. And I was in this plane when I was actually like, would this plane make it in terms of, 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 uh, <laughs> all these kind of things. That's, I think that's, that's what you do very much. That's what I did, um, as well. So I can very much, um, uh, appreciate where you come from there. I, uh, I actually have a list, Chris, of every airplane, every airline that I've ever been on and every, city that I've flown to and, and on which airline and in which airplane I flew to those cities. And I'm pretty sure the list is accurate back all the way to the, the 1970s when I first flew. Jeez, that's nice. That's and, good. Uh, when I was a kid, uh, we would we would spend pretty much every weekend here in uh, Boston at the Logan Airport. Mm -hmm. Just uh, what, what were we doing there? We were plane spotting with the binoculars, but we were also just rummaging. I mean, going behind the ticket counters and into the baggage claim and into <laughs> closets. And we knew the combinations for all the doors. And the objective was really just to collect as much airline stuff. related stuff that we could possibly get our hands on the magazines, timetables. We would go onto planes and, and take the briefing cards from the seat pockets, uh, yeah, anything we could get our hands on. And at one point I had a metal locker that uh, it was probably uh, eight feet long, just, just jam packed full of all of this stuff. Unfortunately, most of it got thrown away at some point, yeah. but, uh, but I did hang on to kind of the most, uh, I guess sentimental pieces right, of it, precious. which I have here in my collection. Yes, I've I've done the same thing, uh, uh, but not as extensive as you have. Um, I had a world map uh, in my uh, in my office room at that time, and I would mark uh, all the destinations that I've flown to, not the air airline, not the aircraft, etc. But I would have at the time I was working for an airline. I have been working for an airline for twelve years in my uh, previous life. Um, and I would have an airside pass. In other words, you could actually go to the planes and I would wait for mm -hmm. the KL 604 or 602 to arrive from Los Angeles to Amsterdam and <laughs> wait for the passengers to, uh, to deboard. And I would get on the plane and I would uh, search for an LA Times and sit in first class and read that newspaper while this plane was being uh, cleaned, et cetera, et cetera. That was good fun to do. I mean, <laughs> and I was in my thirties, I guess, and I was still being the little boy that I was when I was 15. Well, Chris, how about this? I'm, I'm, I just, I'm 50 years old. Um, about a month ago, I was traveling to Asia. I was at Schiphol Airport um, traveling on my own. I went to the business class lounge uh, about three hours earlier than uh -huh. I needed to, uh, <laughs> simply so that I could sit in front of the window and watch the airplanes. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the more exotic, the better. I mean, it's all about the tails. It's kind of almost like bird watching. Yeah, I know. Um, to make an analogy, and, and and you know, here comes China Southern and and China Eastern, and of course all the KLM jets that were there, and and it's all about again, it goes back to those route maps and and the yeah. connection of all these countries and cultures. You know, where is that flight going? Where is that flight coming from? Um, that that kind of grand theater of air travel, as I like to call it. It's not about the planes themselves as much as as where they're going, where they're coming from. The whole the whole thing taken together. That's what excites me. And and to this day, I can I can sit in an observation deck or in a lounge looking out a window and just be be excited by the the whole prospect of, of getting on a plane and flying somewhere. I can very much imagine it's a uh, but but before this 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 talk between you and I ends up into two older uh, boys right. reminiscing over their childhood and still being grown up boys. Let's um, let's move on <laughs> if you don't mind. 
Um, your formal introduction, uh, the one that we could have, uh, that we heard at the beginning of this podcast was kind of modest in a way, because on your website, there's, there's much more, uh, about you. For instance, it says, this is come, comes from your website, askthepilot.com. He, which is you then, Patrick, he has appeared, uh, on over 200 radio and television outlets, including PBS, Discovery Channel, CNN, and the BBC and National Public Radio. Um, this work, or sorry, his work is regularly cited in print publications worldwide. And he was voted, I think this is a big one, he was voted one of the 25 best bloggers of 2013 by no one less than Time Magazine. That's impressive. Um, you know, I'm I'm one of the, the few people out there who, who does what I do. I'm one of the few airline pilots willing to speak publicly on the record about uh, sometimes controversial aspects uh, pertaining to the airline industry. Mm -hmm. And and so it's been relatively uh, easy for certain uh you know media outlets and whatever to to pick up on that. It's 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 something different for them. Um and part of it too is is what I do taps into well l let me put it this way. I say to people never underestimate the contempt that the flying public has for airlines. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's so much anti-airline sentiment out there. It's true. And, and that in turn translates into a great deal of interest for any news story, yeah. uh, uh, any controversy, any, any, any issue really um, that, that, that has to do with, with, with an airline or, or an incident, uh, particularly when you get into accidents and, and mishaps. Um, there's a tendency for for the media to just go crazy with these stories. So there's just just a lot of kind of latent interest out there, mm -hmm. to, waiting for these opportunities to to peak up. And so you have these cycles. Um, anytime there's a, a story, a controversy, an, an incident, whatever, of of just a tremendous public interest, and it it, it kind of ebbs and flows as the stories pop up and die down. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's um, I think is very true. I mean, we uh, recently saw what's happening in the United States as well uh, when it comes to these um, uh, well, the, the the aggression, if you want, uh, turning into violence against passengers, um, th which which brings me into a to a nice segue, if you don't mind, from your experience having done this for the last twenty five years, are passengers different from different cultures? In other words, do certain passengers behave better? I'm making air quotes here better according to the social norms than other passengers do. Are certain passengers more demanding? What's your experience there? Uh, the answer is yes. And, and this can get somewhat sensitive. Um, one thing I find is that uh, domestic flying here in the U.S. Uh -huh. um, tends to be, how to say this exactly, a lot less uh, polite, less... Mm -hmm civilized, less uh, yeah. uh, dignified an experience overall. When I fly internationally, uh, the passengers seem, you know, more relaxed. It, it's, I don't want to overuse the word dignified, but it, it yeah. seems to be a more dignified, more civilized experience overall flying, mm -hmm. uh, say, to Europe or to Asia, uh, to wherever versus uh, flying short hops uh, within the U.S. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's true flying within Europe versus uh, long haul from Europe uh, and, and same with, with Asia and, and elsewhere. I'm not sure, but I definitely notice a difference um, here. 
and I have a feeling you can extrapolate that to, to other other parts of the world yeah, as well. And then there are market specific um, differences. Uh, I, I I don't want to name names, so to speak, but but you know, cabin crew especially will will talk about how they really dislike flying to uh, one particular city overseas because passengers on those flights tend to be very demanding or or rude or are known for uh, stealing liquor from the galley, um, you know, there, there are marked differences. Um, but those particular cases tend to be outliers. Uh, generally, you know, to, to kind of distill it out, I think um, it's fair to say that the long-haul flying tends to be a more relaxed, more, more civilized uh, environment than, than short-haul flying. And what are the reasons for that? We, I suppose we could talk about that separately. It's demographics. It's, it's the pressures and stresses and... and, and expectations and culture expectations and upbringing and stuff like that, yeah. And it, it, it's also the, what people expect and, and, and what they want from the air travel experience itself. You know, flying uh, you know, on a short domestic flight uh, that there's it's it's seen more as just a hurry up and get me there and let's be done with this experience versus the more seriousness i suppose for lack of a better term of, yeah. of flying long haul becomes more like a bus ride or a train ride and, and it's it's just a shame in a way and that's i think where your motivation comes from and your your uh your affection almost with uh with flying is is that if you if you lose the the feeling, the magic of of what's actually happening to you if you if you leave place A and, and end up in place B, that's if if you miss that, then it becomes a mm. bus ride. If it becomes a bus ride, yeah, it becomes annoying, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So that's a bit of a shame, I guess. Well, sure, and let's try not to romanticize it too much because it's very easy to understand why people do see it that way uh, as a bus ride. And oh, yeah, sure. And in some respects, that's okay because what's happened is. Air travel, which used to be something that only uh, a fraction of the population could afford, you know, mm-hmm. has become affordable pretty much for, for almost everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that is mostly a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and almost everybody can fly now. It yeah. didn't used to be that way. Uh, but the downside of that is it is it's changed the demographics in a certain way. And it's uh, airfares have plummeted, and so you should expect also the experience not to be as exclusive feeling as it once was. Uh, I think that 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 just comes with the rest of it. And you know, like any technology, something that was once novel and exciting, uh, you know, has become mundane and in a lot of regards tedious. Um, but every once in a while, I think it's helpful to stand back and then. Think again about what it is that you're doing. I mean, mm-hmm. you're, you're getting on an airplane and, and, you know, flying thousands of feet above the ground, hundreds or thousands of miles away and, and doing it in almost perfect safety. Um, yep. You know, that's pretty remarkable. And I holding think that's a glass gets, of champagne. Holding a glass of champagne, you know, watching uh, movies on your uh, seatback video screen. It's it's really pretty remarkable, and and I think that's lost on a lot of people, especially yeah. younger people who don't remember or don't realize that flying was once uh, a novelty. Yeah, true. 
Um, from passengers, because uh, I want to move to uh, somewhat more in, in your office, that is, that is your cockpit. Although, of course, pilots over the years have grown to be um, not only pilots and, and technical people, but also managers, managers of of, um, of crew and people, passengers on board. I want to move uh, quickly to air traffic controllers. You just you said that there is a difference in culture when it comes to passengers. Is there also a different difference in culture when it comes to air traffic controllers? Are some more polite? Are some less polite? Are some I don't know. What's the difference there? Huh. Interesting question. Um, you know, we we do notice differences that vary region to region, culture to culture. Um, but when you're dealing with air traffic control from a pilot's perspective, it's it's a very superficial thing. It's it's a voice an inflection. Mm-hmm. Um, that's really all you get, you get a sense of it's, it's, it's hard to take it to any really deep level. Uh, you know, we notice some controllers in some countries tend to talk faster than others, uh, <laughs> tend to not like to repeat instructions, uh-huh. um, are hard to understand or, or seem more casual or, mm. or very formal and more serious. Uh, I mean, generally air traffic control is, is pretty, pretty good, pretty professional mm. globally. I mean, there aren't many places that jump out at me as, as you know, seeming unprofessional. But uh, so the the nuances, the differences are are just just voices, inflections, accents, uh, ways of talking that really don't necessarily mean much. Okay, makes uh, makes makes good sense. Do you ever get to know anyone? Do you ever recognize voices like I've, I've spoken to you before? Uh, occasionally, um, yeah, I. I fly out of New York. I'm based out of New York, so you tend to hear the same voices uh, yeah. on the different frequencies. Uh, but it's you know you don't know these people on a first name basis. No, 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 so. no, and they don't know you either. No, no, no. no but you're, it, you're but just it, a flight it is, number. It is interesting. You've just brought something up that I never really thought about before, which is you know the the idea of of hearing these certain people yeah. again and again, people who are you know effectively you know in some respects, you know, in control of your, your, your life and your well-being, uh, who are they exactly? What do they look like? Um, yeah. that, that, that's interesting to explore. Yeah. I've worked for a, for a, a consulting firm where, uh, and, and that, and this is, this was not my job. I was in the culture aspect, but uh, colleagues of mine were actually, uh, hiring air traffic controllers. They were in this, in the, in the selection process of, of air traffic controllers. And hence that's where my question came from. Um, you know, I noticed here in the U S I noticed that, um, uh, this is just anecdotally. Um, it sounds to me as if maybe somewhere between thirty and fifty percent of all the controllers that we hear on the radio now are women. Hmm. Um, you know, why? Why is that? How did that come to be? I'm not sure. It's interesting, though. That is interesting. That is, yeah. That's maybe a, a blog post worth a blog post for your <laughs> from your site, then, not mine. <laughs> um, this is something you mentioned on your uh, on your blog yourself, on your website as well, askthepilot.com. And it's something that I, I just wanted to, uh, because it's something that I noticed as well, the difference in pilot behavior. And I've written down here, U.S. pilots leave the fastened seatbelt sign on longer than pilots in other parts of the world, specifically <laughs> Europe from out of my own experience. But whenever I fly an American airline, I know it's just going to be turned off when we reach cruising altitude 30 plus thousand feet. Why is that? And are there other examples of say pilot behavior that are different say maybe americans do this different and european or asian colleagues do it like this or something like that well i think you probably hit on the best example that uh-huh. there is which is uh, just the you know extreme uh, 
conservatism regarding the seatbelt sign. Uh, personally, and this is just me talking, it's it's it, it's something that um, yeah, I, I find it a little annoying. I, I think that using the seatbelt sign so liberally, um, mm. you know, kind of encourages people to not pay attention to it. Yeah. But there is something to that. It it definitely it definitely does happen. I notice when I travel as a passenger on uh, European, Asian, and other carriers that um, it, there's a lot more discretion as to when the seatbelt sign goes on and off versus any time there's the slightest bump here in the U.S. the the sign comes on. Yes. And I think maybe that's <laughs> uh, maybe that's part of our uh, American fears of litigation exactly. and 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 also just general american squeamishness yeah yeah it's true because sometimes i mean i've obviously having worked for klm uh the airline that i used to work for 100 years ago is is some of these pilots i would wonder you know i could hardly hold my seat uh, even with a seat belt and my coffee would go anywhere uh, and <laughs> and they would just leave the light off you could just still go anywhere and and they were very Almost reluctant turning this thing on, you know. So I don't know why that is. Um, and it's it's yeah. a it's a subjective thing. It's it's a judgment call, really, when you turn it on off. There aren't hard and fast rules as to when we do that. That's you, and, you as in the cockpit decide. Let's turn this on. Correct. Yeah. And for a lot of pilots, the slightest little bump. Well, better safe than sorry. Let's yeah. turn this on now. Nobody can get in trouble. Yeah. Um, that's that's the thinking, which I think ultimately works against safety, but. That's the mindset of a lot of pilots here. It works against lit litigation as well, but it works against safety as well, which ult which would right. be the ultimate goal, indeed. Yes, true. And uh, it's funny. I sometimes get letters. Uh, you know, dear pilot, we were. It was bumpy. The sign came on. An hour later, it was smooth. An hour later, it was smooth. An hour later, it was smooth, and the sign just stayed on, on, on. Mm -hmm. What's the story there? And and the hint there is. Um, you know, did you forget to turn the sign off? And on a, are you sleeping? My honest answer. My honest answer is yes. Sometimes we forget. Okay. Uh, you know, the seatbelt sign is is a comparatively minor um, piece of, of of all the different uh, technology and and buttons and switches and dials and screens that we have in the cockpit. And and sometimes, yeah, we uh, sometimes we forget to switch it off. I can imagine. Yeah. Um, it's, um, it's, let's see, I'm looking at the time here, about 25 minutes in recording. I want to move to your book. I have a couple of other questions, but please see if we have time for that. Your book called Cockpit Confidential. Um, tell us a little bit about that. Why did you write it? What kind of stuff can we find there? I wrote it mainly because I was growing frustrated with all of the uh, as I described it earlier, anti-airline sentiment out there, all of the distrust of flying, all of the different uh, urban myths and, and conspiracy theories and just all of this generally negative thinking and feeling about, about the air travel experience. And also the fact that what most people think they know about commercial flying is, is if not wrong, then just inaccurate and misguided. And, and for somebody who has been in the industry as long as I have and, and who, who loves it, you know, that's, that's frustrating to just yeah. be, be constantly bombarded by all of this, just, just ignorance uh, and nonsense. Yeah. For, for lack of a better way of putting it. Yeah, um, I'm saying yeah. it, you can just quote me. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a way I suppose of, of setting the record straight, getting better, uh, accurate information out there. Um, 
and part of it too i think was was capitalizing on that that negativity and that that distrust that people have um you know never underestimate the contempt people have for flying i say that over and over again yeah you do it sometimes works to my advantage and i i don't have that i I really enjoy it i mean i have this this i would say a big fear of flying and my my medicine is uh is in the bottle if you um if that makes any sense uh and i'm a i'm a happy passenger and i really enjoy the whole experience from from uh, the queuing is something you know that's not always pleasant but it's just part of it, I guess. And I come on time and I'm not in the queue and I just enjoy the whole experience. So I don't have this contempt. But I very much agree with well, you. That a lot of people are nagging and nagging and nagging if it's just the only thing they can do is nag. But like like I was saying earlier too, though, you know, we shouldn't over-romanticize it. And it's easy to understand where this contempt comes from, where this frustration comes from. You know, the whole at-the-airport experience with security and the lines and then on top of that, uh, airlines let's face it, are not the uh, best communicators that they could be when things go wrong. And there's uh, parts in my book where I talk about that, how airlines could be better communicators. Uh, You know, here are six or eight things that, if implemented, could, I think, you know, greatly change people's mindsets and and how they – how they perceive the experience of flying, ways to make it better, ways to make it less tedious. A lot of that, of course, needless to say, starts with security, which is something we could spend all day talking about sure. separately. Yeah. Um, but let's face it, a lot of what we deal with is is irrational and, and inconveniences people, wastes huge amounts of our collective uh, patience and money, mm. and really does nothing to make us safer. And, you know, yet we put ourselves out there and we go through it. And, and uh, you know, I wish I wish more people stood up to it. I wish the airlines, uh, you know, could somehow um, combat that and, and, and maybe fight back. The problem there is airlines don't ever want to be seen as lobbying against safety or even what is perceived to be safety. There, there's just too much to lose there. The, the problem is then the tedium goes on and on, and in some cases gets worse. You know, now we have this new transatlantic laptop ban that may or may not be coming out. I mean, wh- mm. where does it stop? It just seems to forever be getting be getting worse. Yeah, yeah, that's true. On the other hand, you know, I th- what I think airlines they they do. Uh, they're uh, they're a bit victim of their own success and of course competition as well because if you look at all the ads that they put in the air and on in in print etc i mean you are promised the smoothest ride ever and what people experience of course are big big queues and and security issues <laughs> which an airline does not cannot influence um and then people missing connections and missing flights and and what are losing holidays and business time etc etc so um, just one more question about the book. It's a, it's called Cockpit Confidential. What is the the most confidential thing? And if if it's not a really a confidential thing, what is the most the biggest thing that people are the most ignorant about that you address in your book? Oh, I don't know where to begin on that one. <laughs> um, you know, there are certain topics that that are my 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 pet peeves. I think the biggest one for me is the subject of cockpit automation. Mm-hmm. The idea that the autopilot is is flying the plane and the and pilots are there really just as a backup in case something goes wrong, uh-huh. um, that is so incorrect and 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 such a uh, what's the word underestimation. <laughs> it's it's just so wrong in so many ways, and yet we hear it over and over and over uh-huh. again, and and the media uh, you know makes it worse. You know. You, 
you're you're always coming across these articles about how it's just you know only, in only a few years planes are going to be completely autonomous and, and pilots are being engineered out of the cockpit and it's 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 not true. Um, yeah, you know, the, the analogy that that I like to make is that uh, modern automation in a cockpit helps pilots the way that modern technology in an operating room helps a surgeon, mm-hmm. but. Uh, an airplane, a commercial jetliner, no more flies itself than uh, an operating room can perform an organ transplant by itself. Sure, yeah. And uh, automation, the autopilot isn't flying the plane. The the pilots are flying the plane through the autopilot, if that makes any sense. You sure. you still have to tell the automation what to do, when to do it, and how to do it. Yeah. Um, and a cockpit gets very, very busy. Mm-hmm. Uh, up to the point of task saturation for for both pilots, you know, even with all of the automation on, it's still there, there's still a lot of hands-on control. But your hands are are interacting with different equipment than in decades past when you simply had your hands on on the steering wheel and were were steering the plane. Yeah. Um, so you're you're you've come to rely on a different skill set pilots have, but it's it, it's unfair to say that one skill set was easier. Uh, than than another, um, but it's 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 different flying than it was say in the 1930s. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's but in a lot of ways it's still very very work intensive and and yeah. Meanwhile, just for the record, ninety uh, some odd percent of all landings are still made hands on manually, the old fashioned quote unquote way. Mm-hmm. Um, and 100% of takeoffs are, are hands-on manual takeoffs. There's no such thing as an automatic takeoff anywhere in commercial aviation. Yeah, A lot of people don't realize that. That's because of V1 and rotate and V2. <laughs> uh, but let, let's not go in. That's where my knowledge ends as well. Let's not get too technical on no, <laughs> I was going to ask you about something. I'm not going to ask you, but I, I did write it down. I read it on um, uh, on your article uh, on turbulence, which is, is the, the top of the uh, of the articles um, uh, where you answer a lot of questions, stuff like that. Uh, you, you talk about ensure high speed buffet protection in the between brackets. Don't ask. So don't ask. Let's let's not ask. <laughs> let's not talk about well, that. But let's, people- let's not ask. And, and a good point there. The the book the book is not a technical book. No. Uh, there are no diagrams. There are no uh, elaborate technical discussions. It's not a book about flying uh-huh. per se. It's it's about airlines. It's about. Um, it's it there's a lot of myth busting and just explaining just in general terms how things are done and how they're not done versus how people assume they're done or not done it's it's more a book i think about airline culture than any uh the the than it is about the technological mm. aspects it's it's not a book for people who have a um it's not a book for people who are already interested in commercial aviation, who are already into planes or airlines. Yeah. It's for frequent flyers or for fearful flyers, people who who uh, experience flying but don't necessarily understand what goes on. Yeah. And okay, makes makes good sense. Um, it's. Uh uh, it's, there's a lot to read on your website as well, and I guess there's a lot to read in your book as well. I've got two more questions. Um, if no, actually three, but that, that one is a really simple one. Do you have any favorite destinations in the world that you like to fly to? I enjoy flying to Africa uh-huh. probably more than any other region. 
for the, the simple reason that, um, well, I guess it's not a simple reason. It's, it's kind of, it's kind of hard to articulate actually, but it goes back to being a kid and, and imagining that, you know, I was going to grow up to be a Pan Am captain and would be flying to all of these uh, glamorous exotic destinations. Uh, you know, the more, uh, exotic, which is, I guess, a politically incorrect word to use, uh, the farther flung it is, uh, the more exciting it is to me. Um, a lot of that. a lot of pilots are perfectly content to fly to Dallas, Texas, over and over again. Um, but I I, I prefer uh, just the 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 excitement. Yep. I guess we have to say of, of flying to I don't I, I fly fly to Ghana a lot to mm -hmm. uh, Ghana, and it, it's yeah. it's always exciting to me, no matter how many times I've done yeah. it. You know, and it's, and, and as soon as the fly, as the, as the door opens, or as soon as you open your window in the cockpit window, if you ever do that, you have this particular smell, smell. and it's, it's the smell mm -hmm. of, of Africa. It's actually yep. the smell of burned wood. That's what I think what you're smelling. But it's something it so Un distinct. African. It's, it's probably in, you know when you really trace it back. It's it's uh, you know the, the the burning of the forests. I think so. Yeah, the, or what people use for cooking and stuff like that. Um, the one but last question, Patrick, is can you give us three? Uh, tips to become more culturally competent. In other words, if you're going to another destination, uh, what do you do as an airline pilot and you've never been there or it was your first time? How did you become culturally competent? What are your three tips for us, the audience? I don't know if that's a fair question to ask me because I'm probably not culturally competent because I still go into it a lot of times with the uh, uh, the mindset of a little kid, it's still very exciting and, and different to me. And I, I'm, I probably uh, act culturally uh, incorrect and impolite uh -huh. in a lot of ways, but that's just part of my, uh, you know, being enthusiastic and excited about being there. I don't know. I mean, what can I say that's not um, hackneyed? Uh, you know, patience, I suppose, is the most important thing. That's something. Um, you know, patience, open-mindedness, um, what else? Um, humility. Again, please. Humility. Humility. Yeah. Patience, open-mindedness. Let the experience come to you rather than try to uh, impose yourself on it, if that makes any sense. It makes uh, a lot of sense. Uh, typically for the audience who are frequent listeners to this, because I ask every guest uh, for three tips to become more culturally competent, and no one has ever um, said patience and being, well, humble. No, that's... Really? No, no, it's true. So it's a, it's a unique one there. Um, oh. Patrick, if people do want to get in touch with you, how can they do that? Oh, very easy. Uh, just drop by my website, which is askthepilot.com. Uh, there's a link there to email me. And I try to answer all of my email. It may take a while before I get to you in the queue, but as long as your question isn't completely ridiculous and isn't about chemtrails or some other nonsense and you aren't swearing at me, um, I will get back to you. All right. Fantastic. Thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, where is your next, next flight to? Uh, thanks, Chris. Uh, where is my next flight to? The fact that I have to pause and think about it will give you some insight into how strange my life is and how strange my job is. Uh, Paris. Paris. Uh, next week and, and Sao Paulo, Brazil, after that. Okay. I think a lot of people are like, wow. <laughs> but it's only you that can, that, that can do that, plus all your colleagues, of course. All right. Have a safe flight wherever you're going. Thanks so much for your time, and I'm pretty sure we'll bump into each other in the future. Anytime, Chris. Thank you. Bye-bye. 
Thank you, Patrick, again for doing the interview. Um, we were not at 35,000 feet, but at least, you know, I thought it was a high-flying interview in any case. This is the end of the podcast, number 81 with Patrick Smith. A couple of notes in the margin here, household notes if you want. If you want to uh, leave a review in iTunes, then please, that would be really nice if you could do that. Uh, the more reviews, of course, the higher this uh, uh, this episode comes and the higher this podcast comes and the more people are able to listen to this. Um, if you would know anybody that would be make a good guest on the show, why not write me an email and we can see if we can put something together. Could be yourself, could be somebody that you've heard on the radio or seen on TV. And then finally, last but not least, get the Culture Matters app. It's finally there. Go to culturematters.com slash app. It's available for Android and for iPhone as well. All right, that's it. I'll talk to you in about two weeks' time. Take care. Bye-bye. That's it for this episode. Culture Matters, making you understand cultural diversity better by interviewing real people with real experiences. Your host, Chris Smith, has a plan. A plan for people who are looking for a solution.